0: Adventurers, this is MuseCast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your co-host Emmy.
1: And I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura.
0: And we've done the Realm Reborn Beast Tribes, we've done the Heavensward Beast Tribes. So now, this episode, as expected, of course, is our third Beast Tribe episodes. This time we are focusing on the Stormblood Beast Tribes. Wow,
1: couldn't have predicted that.
0: <laughs> yeah, really. It's I, I never would have guessed. <laughs> Anyways, so I mean we've, we've we've talked a little bit about beast tribes before. Um let's just get started with this episode, shall we?
1: Yes, let's get started with the first beast tribe we meet, the Kojin. They are of course the turtle like people that reside in the Ruby Sea. Their factions are the blue and the red. The blue are our friends, the nice guys. The red are the bad guys that work for the Garleans.
0: Yeah, so let's go into a little bit more about both of those factions. The red Kojin are more mercenaries. They've put their faiths in the in the Kami aside, and they've, like you said, work for the Garlean's. And the blue Kojin are traders, and they try to lead more or less peaceful lives. They don't want to work with the Garlean's and fight. They take goods that they find in the Ruby Sea, or art that they make from items that they find in the Ruby Sea. And what both of them are doing, regardless of whether they're mercenaries or whether they're traders, is they're trying to get precious objects. Really, the Kojin are are treasure collectors. They are a very object-based society, and they think that the, the Kami reside in these relic objects, these precious objects. They might be old objects. They might be valuable objects. It's not really clear what makes an object precious as far as we know but a cogent will just come across an item and be like oh the kami's in it yeah
1: (laughs) now kami is usually translated as god but it's something more like a spirit i think we would say there's some sort of divine essence that lives in these treasure objects they believe and the kami are multiple they're infinite susano is an example of a kami but there are countless others in this particular belief system that is prevalent in the Far East,
0: right, including living things, they think that in order to get to the mortal plane, your soul has to be part of an object first. It's sort of like a transition state for the kojin.
1: And everybody ends up getting named for the object they were before,
0: right? Which is a little bit weird. It makes me think, like, <laughs> what was what was Soroban before?
1: A, a, what was I don't he know? Named what is it? a Soroban? I don't know.
0: I don't know either. <laughs> Anyway, so Soroban was once an object.
1: Yes. What is he now?
0: Hmm, well now now he's an auspice in training, I suppose. Yeah. Um as of as of four point five, and this is this is an interesting point here. He's an auspice, and what the definition of that is, in the lore book at least, is that it's a beast. It's a beast that, you know, has lived for over a hundred years, lived for a long, long, long time, and gets, you know, all this All this wisdom. And so the Kojin, they really are a beast tribe in that they're considered beasts. You know, all of the four lords that we see, for example, are all animals. You have Byako, who's a tiger. You've got Seryu, who's a snake. You've got Suzaku, who's a bird. And then Soroban, even though we work with him as a member of the beast tribe, he is still an auspice. He's a turtle. He's a talking turtle, but he doesn't look like what we in the real world would consider, you know, an average turtle. He's a bipedal turtle.
1: Yeah, he's got a shell, though.
0: Right, he's got a shell, but it's still kind of interesting that, yes, he really, I guess, is a beast. The Kojin really are beast men in the sense of the word.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at it closely, most of the beast tribe races end up being some kind of humanoid, sort of anthropomorphic hybrid. They're all bipedal. They're all kind of humanoid in shape. Hey, and remember Ninja Turtles? They were turtles who walked. They were. (laughs) So, Sorobon is going to live a long, long, long life. But much like turtles in the real world, the Kojin actually do have longer-than-average lifespans. And because of this, the authority in the government, shall we say, of their society goes to the elders. Bunchin is the elder of Tamamizu. That's something that's also integral to Far East culture, respect for elders. And in my opinion, since I listened to the voice acting mostly in Japanese, and this doesn't really appear in English, they tend to talk slowly. They sound like they're elderly. That's the impression I got.
0: I don't think that was the case in the English version. I think they sounded a little bit more normal. So maybe that was just different voice direction to correspond with the culture in the Japanese version.
1: Yeah, but a lot of cultural points of the Kojin are very Asian, Far Eastern-themed, Japanese-themed. Their names sound Japanese.
0: Right. And after all, they are in the Far East.
1: Yeah, they are part of Pseudo-Asia. Now, we have another beast tribe race that is more inspired by South Asian culture in Stormblood, and that's the Ananta.
0: Yeah, the Ananta... Are based a little bit more on Hindu culture, it seems like. After all, they do worship Lakshmi, who comes from Hinduism.
1: Yes, Ananta is a Sanskrit word, as is Shri. Sometimes they refer to their primal as Shri Lakshmi. That's a title that's used in that culture mm-hmm. of reverence, of respect. Now, the Ananta are the only beast race we have so far that is all of one gender, they are all female. And they reproduce asexually. Their top half essentially just looks like a Huron human woman. And their bottom half basically looks like a snake.
0: And Lakshmi, funnily enough, is supposed to be like a goddess who's very focused on like beauty and bliss. And so beauty is a spiritual virtue that Lakshmi demands of the Ananta. So their culture is very focused on appearance. They dress up a lot. They take very, very good care of their skin. And honestly, I think the Ananta are one of the most beautiful races that I've seen.
1: Yeah, a lot of side quests reference this, in addition to the Beast Tribe quests.
0: Right, but even though they still are focused on beauty in some respect, they do have to get things done, and they do. They use magic to manipulate metal. Usually we see that in the form of jewelry, but they can make statues, they can make buildings. So they're a very, very, very capable group. You know, it's it's not just a surface level beauty, it's you know, being able to, to take care of themselves like any sort of beast tribe would be able to. We see that they're able to fight, we see that they're able to defend themselves, and in the main scenario we have an Ananta helping out with the goldsmith school in Alumigo.
1: Indeed. And the actual Ananta Beast Tribe Quest deals with a faction of the Alamegan Resistance that's mostly made up of Ananta that's stationed at Castellum Veladina. So as fighters, they ally themselves with the Alamegan Resistance and provide soldiers and are very capable on the battlefield. Usually we see them with rapiers or bows and arrows. So let's not forget that they live in Garlean-occupied territory. And of course, like most other beast tribes, there are two factions. The Vera faction are the ones who are our friends, and the ones who are allied with the Alamegan resistance. There's another tribe, the Kalyana, that are much more insular in their ways, and basically instead of opposing Garlamald, let Garlamald do what they wanted, as long as they could be left alone.
0: Right, and it was this tribe that ended up summoning Lakshmi at the summit between all the Alamegan leaders. So they may be a little bit more extreme, I suppose, than the Vira are at the moment.
1: Yeah, they summoned Lakshmi the first time in the main scenario, too. Now, in both tribes, the leadership lies with the Broodmother, which is a title that's passed down from mother to daughter and is believed to have existed since the creation of the Ananta. They believe they were created by Lakshmi way back when in the origin myth. What we do know for a fact is that they have existed since the time of the Alligans, now, a lot of lore nuts kind of latched onto this Allig reference and made note that there are creatures called Lamia in a lot of the Alligan-based zones, like the Binding Coil, that look basically like Ananta, like the boss of turn 7, Meliside. They look basically exactly the same. And we met them before we met the Ananta. Right. So there's this speculation.
0: Yeah, some people think that the Ananta were created by the Allegans. Maybe it also could be that the Allegans used the Ananta as the basis for their design for the Lumia. Or maybe they used Ananta when they were creating Chimeras and you ended up with the Lamia. So which came first, the Ananta or the Lamia? Well, for now, we don't know. But it could be either way. Maybe it's completely unrelated.
1: Yes, it is a subject of speculation, though. Lore nuts just love to speculate. And let's face it, Alec did get up to some crazy shit.
0: Yeah, that is very true. So, even though we don't know a whole lot about where the Ananta originated from, there is one beast tribe, I think, that is in the Far East that has a pretty outrageous creation story. Oh, yeah. Or, or a legend. So, let's move to that. The Namazu will be yes, the next yes. beast tribe that we talk about. <laughs> yes, yes. The Namazu are apparently a bunch of catfish that climbed onto land.
1: So their crazy creation myth. They actually don't have a primal and thus they're not considered a beast tribe by the Garlean standards. But for our purposes they are the Crafting and Gathering Beast Tribe. They revere their greatest ancestor, who is called the Big One, who was a catfish who ate so many other fish that he became so big and filled up the river and blocked the river. So in order to escape, he had to bite off part of his tail. And this piece of tail that he broke off from himself transformed itself into a namazu, a catfish that could walk. And thus the first namazu walked off into the sunset. However, the big one never escaped the river. He ended up passing into the heavens.
0: (laughs) And they still revere the big one to this day.
1: Which is kind of funny. I'm like, is, is that really someone you want to respect? Someone who ate themselves
0: to death? You know what? Now that I think of it, it seems like they are the Far Eastern version of Moogles. <laughs> but that said, look at how King Magomog was summoned. It wasn't a deity. So maybe one day you could end up seeing the Namazu summoning the big one. Now, I don't think that'll ever happen within the main scenario. It seems like everything's kind of wrapped up with them at this point. But hey, imagine if they did summon the big one. What would that be like?
1: It would either be the biggest badass or the, or the biggest flop. Literally. Flop, flop.
0: Blop, blop. Yeah, they just summon a fish.
1: <laughs> a very, very big fish. Yes. Now, one thing you'll have noticed about the Nimazu is their names. Every one of them begins with Gyo, which in Japanese means
0: fish. Well, what a surprise. They're fish and they're named fish.
1: <laughs> yes. So they have language, they have a society, but they have very little in the way of culture or industry. And there are a couple of exceptions that we meet in side quests. And in B-Stripe Quest, there's Gyorin, who wants to become a merchant, and has you do a lot of the dirty work,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: so you can become a merchant.
0: So that he can become a merchant. <laughs> it's like the Moogles all over again.
1: You have Gyoshin, who is the inspiration for the festival of the 777, based on a dream he had about the big one. And then you have everybody's favorite Getsu the Enlightened, who decided he didn't want a fish name.
0: Yeah, he took it out and he changed his name himself to Segetsu
1: And called himself the Enlightened because he can read. This is amazing. This is amazingly unique.
0: I guess it's not all that common for Namazu to be able to read. It's been shown that Eorzeans, many Eorzeans don't know how to read either, or write for that matter, or spell properly. So there's a bunch of different variations on how things are spelled.
1: Yeah, so needless to say, he's probably the smartest Namazu that's ever lived. He kind of takes charge of the festival of the 777. He hands out your beast tribe quests. He bosses everybody around, works them to the bone. And that whole quest line's really interesting. We won't spoil it for you. Go grind it.
0: And it seems like even though Segetsu is really in charge of this whole effort, though, the Amasu doesn't have a governing body. They don't have a big structure of government at this point. And it's only when we do the beast tribes that we even set up some sort of semblance of, of organization. And that said though, the Namazu has been helping the people of Doma. When Doma was founded, they were messengers and it helped unite the factions of Yansha to create what Yansha is now. So in return for helping them so much, the Namazu ended up getting some bells to wear on their necks, which they still wear to this day. Now, how exactly the current generation of Namazu got bells, I'm not sure. Maybe they made them, maybe they traded for them. But somehow, maybe they were passed down.
1: Hmm, that is not explained.
0: Not really. And the Warriors of Light end up getting these bells too. So who knows?
1: <laughs> Where are they getting them? Where's the bell manufacturing plant?
0: I'm going to say the East Aldenard Trading Company, but that is pure speculation.
1: <laughs> hmm, it's possible.
0: Now, one of the weirdest part about the Namazu, I think, is that unlike a lot of the other beast tribes that we've seen, it doesn't look like they have a lot of factions. They don't have a bad guy faction. We just help out the ones that are hanging out in Doro Ilo. And while some of them have become civilized over there, there are some who are still wandering around in places like Yansha, and they still live along the rivers. So they aren't bad. There aren't any namazu who are opposing the faction that we work with. But there are definitely some who are not quite as enlightened and are still living in this Very free reign society. Primitive, I would say. Yeah, primitive or it, it just doesn't have a lot of structure to it and a lot of culture. So they exist, they are beast tribes, but we see them in the open world if you aren't working with them as just a regular mob. Yeah, and they will
1: attack you, so they're not very nice.
0: Right. But why? Who knows? Eh. We won't really get to know.
1: But yes, the Namazu are very diverse. And very humorous. They're also, like the Moogles, seen as very lazy and making you do all the dirty work. As far as their drinking habits, they don't drink alcohol, but apparently they get drunk off tea. So they have a little bit of an intoxicating beverage.
0: Right, but I guess alcohol either isn't their taste or isn't effective.
1: Yeah, but a regular old cup of tea, they'll they'll get crunk.
0: (laughs) Imagine a character who enjoys tea hanging out with a Namazu and wondering what in the world is going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, some of the quests you get in Yakuza Manor reference that. That's the other place where they've sort of congregated together. And they have so many side quests and there's so many funny little stories about the Nabazu. But it's nice to see another lighthearted, humorous, funny, cute beast tribe.
0: I agree. It's nice to have some levity every so often. And it's
1: nice to have a beast tribe that'll help you level your crafters and gatherers. So I definitely recommend leveling up your Namazu and getting that Mikoshi mount.
0: Washoi. Washoi. (laughs) And that wraps up all of our beast tribes that we will talk about in this episode.
1: Believe it or not, that's not all the beast races that exist on Hydaelyn.
0: That's right. There are a lot of other beast races that appear in Eorzea. But unfortunately, we don't have enough time to talk about that. So all of those will be part of our bonus content. So for all of our Patreon supporters, please look forward to that.
1: Yes, anyone $10 and above gets access to bonus audio content and text content.
0: However, we've talked about a lot of Beast Tribes, way too many for me to count in my head at the moment. (laughs) So that said, you might be interested in role-playing a Beast Tribe character, but can you?
1: Sure, people do it. We've talked to them. That's why we made this episode. I mean, these are all intelligent beings with their own cultures, values, sometimes their own industries, their own mannerisms of speech. They may lead more simplistic lives than those more civilized spoken races who live in cities, but they're just as quote-unquote human as anyone else. There's actually a page in the second lore book which argues that the term beast man is prejudicial and should be dropped, and basically argues that there's no difference between what we consider beastmen and what we consider non-beastmen.
0: Right. After all, all of these characters that we interact with have their own distinct personalities. Well, perhaps except for the hive mind who work as a collective. Yes. But seeing as role playing is about creating your own unique character, you probably would want to create a character that has a bit more personality than just, I'm a robot. I do what... The overmind says.
1: Yeah, you want to be part of the non-mind.
0: Right. So I think it's entirely possible for you to roleplay as a beast race person. Now, that said, depending on which tribe you choose, it might be a little bit more difficult in writing, just in that you're going to have to perhaps adapt in some ways to the verbal tics of the race. Now, there might be a perfectly good reason as to why they were able to adapt human speech or... Maybe you decide to choose a race that only uses, for example, occasional clicks. Maybe you choose a race that sounds almost exactly like human speech but uses kupo. Some are going to be easier than others to to write for the ticks.
1: Very much so. The embolja, as I recall, basically have no verbal ticks.
0: Right. So it may be a little bit difficult for some and not so much for others. And who knows? Some people may be very, very quick At doing it, I imagine over time, you probably would get a little bit more used to writing in the certain speech pattern or speech style of your character. And that happens with any sort of character that you roleplay, I think. The more you do it, the easier it probably gets.
1: Now, something to keep in mind when creating your Beast Race character, too, is that unless specified otherwise, every Beast Race has males and females. They're not always very, very distinct from each other, though. And... Unfortunately, bias tends to make us assume that all of the non humans are male, but they're female kobolds, they're female vanu vanu, I assume they're female nath. It's only the Ananta that have been specifically designed to be all female.
0: Right, which may present a problem if you're trying to create a male Ananta, because what are they like? Well, they don't exist.
1: Yeah, that's kind of lore breaking,
0: but. Who says you can't? Yeah, nobody's saying you can't. <laughs> you can yeah. all play as, as whatever you would like.
1: I think it's kind of funny how you can tell the female Vanu Vanu because of the fact that they wear flower crowns around their heads. And you can tell the female kobolds because they have lighter colored fur and pink armor. <laughs> I call this the Ms. Pac-Man effect. How in order to create Ms. Pac-Man, they just put a bow on Pac-Man.
0: Mm-hmm. Now that presents another little obstacle then. If you're trying to create a female Vanu Vanu for example, you might be interested in using a character costume that they have in game. We have a Vanu Vanu costume where you can just put on their head and put on their body and that's fine, but then you can't put on another hat on top of that. So that may be a little bit tough to distinguish, hey, I am a female Vanu Vanu unless you put it in your description or something and that might help. The same thing goes for beast tribes that don't have costumes at all like the sylphs or like the namazu. It may be a little bit more difficult and take a little bit of explaining to people that, hey, I am a namazu. You know, Mughals might be easy. They have a Mughal costume, but not all of your beast tribes have those costumes. So you'll have to just state that outright. Hey, I am such and such.
1: Yeah. And as far as the gender thing goes, some beast races have a distinction between the naming conventions of males and females, and some don't. Goblins have it, sylphs have it, Namazu don't have it. Ixal actually have a pretty complex naming convention. They have it, Abalja don't. Like we've been saying, every culture is different here.
0: And so that initial moment of contact with other role players might take a little bit of explaining for them, but I think it's entirely possible to roleplay as a beast tribe race, even if it might not appear that they're part of a beast tribe at face value.
1: We're talking about role-playing in-game, right?
0: Yes, role-playing in-game. Now, role-playing on other mediums like Tumblr, that'll be a little bit easier because you can just state on your profile, for example, hey, I'm an Namazu," and that'll be it. People can just read it outright. But a lot of people approach other people in-game just assuming, oh, I see a Rugadin. They must be a Rugadin. I see an Elizin, They must be an Elizin. And it's not until you actually get to know that person and role play with them that you start realizing, no, this is not what I thought that they were.
1: Yeah, you've got to just pick the closest approximation in the character creator that you can get and understand that you're going to have a little bit of a hard time explaining this to everybody, that your character is actually of a different race that's not in character creator. But it's been done many times.
0: In fact we have another listener who sent in a submission about what it was like to play a Namazu. So listener Chazori sent in a very, very long and very, very helpful submission about what it was like for them to play as a Namazu Paladin. So here is what they had to say. My character is Gyozori Dreamscape. She is a Namazu Paladin. The idea initially panned out from just playing FF14. I made my way through all the content and when I got to the latest expansion, I fell in love with the Namazu. From the initial appearance of Gyodo in the main scenario, to the antics of Gyoushen, Gyore, and Segetsu the Enlightened, I was enthralled over the time I have spent with my fishy friends. I've played a bit in Pathfinder and Dungeons & Dragons before I came across Namazu in FF14, and in those games I played Kobolds who spoke with a lot of phrases ending in yes yes. From those points on, I cemented that my Lalafell would actually be a Namazu. Funnily, before I had met them in Stormblood, I was even going down a route to roleplay as a Mughal and was working on that backstory. That idea has since been shelved, but who knows, maybe someday? Yozori is drawn from a desire to wander, explore, and be creative. We see most Namazu in the Far East in Othard and Kugane. My thoughts were immediately, okay, but how would a Namazu fare in Eorzea and on an even larger scale in Hydaelyn? What would other characters think? Would they be accepted? What does the namazu itself think by differing technologies or even laws? How about just daily slice of life things? These things are not upfront for us to experience. Combine these things together and you have kyozori, with of course more background information to be found out through character interactions. I find the namazu very appealing. For one, I just like playing smaller characters and like the thought of a small character standing toe-to-toe with a much larger adversary.
1: Cough, 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 scoop-a-toot. Cough, 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 cough.
0: scoop, a-toot, pretty much. That's exactly (laughs) why I created him. (laughs) Additionally, their speech mannerisms and just being able to be a silly, fun character that can provide a good base for introducing various random spur-of-the-moment events in a group or adventuring party. The forest of Gadania may be awe-inspiring for a Namazu who may want to investigate what makes the trees so tall, thus halting a hunting party in its tracks. Most importantly in Gyōzori's case, horse birds, or chocovos as you call them. These minor details can lead to deeper conversation even if it just becomes a minor side quest, but it adds flavor to the character and groups.
1: Shazora goes on to say, the biggest advantage of playing an Amazu is actually an advantage for other player characters, too. These PCs get to interact with a different race entirely that are included in the rest of the spoken races. NPCs are certainly one thing, but a PC of a beast race can add interesting dynamics to a scene. It also gets you, as a player of a beast race, a chance to expand and make a storyline you may not be used to. Every tribe has their own beliefs, culture, goals, and religion. These points may lead to expansive storylines that just a simple conversation can spark or writing material for you to expand on for your backstory. As for disadvantages, the most glaring one is the fact that you don't have an avatar that represents your character in-game. I cannot recall how many times I've been referred to as a Lalafell or Taru by those in-game. Most of the time, it can be corrected with a simple, kind whisper, letting them know, along with a link to my character art.
0: That's a good idea, letting them know what the character actually would look like.
1: She goes on to say, There have been a few unfortunate events where I have been told that my character was stupid, or just referred to as a Lollafell instead, as if the lala they saw was under some kind of identity crisis. These events, rare as they are, can be very discouraging. Most of my interaction takes place in-game, and on Discord channels. There have also been many thoughts of me playing or GMing a Pathfinder slash Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition game (laughs) with Final Fantasy classes and races that I would really, really enjoy. Yes, yes. (laughs) Beast tribes really allow you to think outside the box. Some of them have so little information on them compared to the Spoken races that your creativity can run rampant while still staying true to the core of the race itself. A Moogle white mage or conjurer may be indebted for the help provided by a group of adventurers and lend their furry paws to their group, while playing tricks on the members and ending every few sentences with a sharp coupo. A kobold may give up its pickaxe and regiment to become an entrepreneur by selling their goods in Limsa, but be attracted to some rare ores. A vanu-vanu may want to see what's below the clouds, and an Ixale may want to see what's up in them, but they need friends to make the perilous trek. Playing humanoid characters are certainly more relatable, as they have very similar characteristics as you, the player, does behind the screen. In my case, for example, Gyozori can easily feel dried out by being out of water too long, something an Ellison here or Makode would never even think about. So, every so often, Gyozori will pull out a flask of water and dump it on herself to help rehydrate herself. You may think something odd of me if I did that in real
0: life. I didn't think about that. That's really cool! Just paying attention to that sort of detail, I think would make for a very well-fleshed-out character.
1: Yes, yes. And she concludes with, The biggest thing is not to get discouraged if people ignore you or think your character is way out there or doesn't make sense. Have fun with it. As a wise man once said, If it's not fun, why bother? Thank you so much, Chizori.
0: Thank you. I think that provided a lot of insight of what it's like to play as one of these more outrageous beast tribe members
1: yes and there were many other people that we spoke to some of them contributed to our episodes some didn't
0: yes so a big thank you to everybody who helped us put together this episode
1: yes and thank you for doing something creative and different in the rp community
0: indeed kupo yes yes <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps it up for our beast tribe series it's been a whirlwind but it's been fun
1: it has there's so many We did three episodes, and there's going to be a bonus episode on Patreon.
0: Actually, two bonus episodes. Remember, we have the Dragonspeak episode. Oh, yeah.
1: Yes, we're going to do an entire bonus episode on the dragon language, a.k.a. Dragonspeak, which has been developed as a very fleshed-out conlang by Koji Fox and is way more complicated than I thought on first glance.
0: So for our next actual MuseCast episode, though, not bonus content, what are we talking about next? Actually, I think we have something a little bit different in store for our next episode. We do. We are,
1: unfortunately, having another one of those real-life situations.
0: But a good one. A very, very good one.
1: That will prevent us from recording for the next couple of weeks. But to, in order to continue to bring you content, we're going to bring you a voice RP skit that we've been working on for a long, long time. And I'm really excited to finally release this, maybe because I'm in it.
0: <laughs> That's true. Yeah, we're doing a... It's a mouth focused voice RP skit, and we wrote it up ourselves. It was really more Remix who wrote it up herself.
1: I call it Operation Archon Deleted Scenes. And a friend of ours, Risrael Kahnbarwin, who did our Character Creation 101, plays Ralbon. And the scene takes place during Operation Archon, a.k.a. the end of the 2.0 main scenario. So please, please do look forward to that, because I'm very excited about it.
0: I am, too. I'm looking forward to how that turns out. I think you guys are really going to like it.
1: Yes, it's just something so different than a normal episode. We've got sound effects... We've got background music. We've got this whole sound design. Much like some of the previous voice RPs that we've done over the holidays.
0: Yes, so you can expect that within the next few weeks after we release this episode. Now. now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We know what's going to happen.
1: Now. We know what happens next.
0: Indeed. So, every episode, because we love playing the game so very much, we give an account of something that has happened between the last episode and now... In-game, out-of-game, in-character, out-of-character, just something that is FF14-related, that's happened to us. So, because you started last time, I believe, I'll start this time. This morning, as we are recording this, it's February 2nd, and we had the announcement of a little bit more information about Shadowbringers, the next expansion that is coming out in FF14. And so, I got to take a little look at that, I didn't see the entire keynote speech But I did get to take a look at the extended trailer and the information this morning. And a lot of it was what I had expected. But what was most interesting to me was, of course, the main scenario and the plot of that. And just kind of speculating on what could it possibly be in our next expansion? Where could we be going? What could we be doing? So we know already that we are going to become the Warriors of Darkness, bringing darkness to wherever it is. But when we went to FanFest in Las Vegas, I had this theory that maybe we could be going to the first. And after seeing this trailer, and I won't spoil it very much because some of you may not have seen the trailer, and and if you're listening to this and Shadowbringers has already come out, then you can tell me just how wrong I was or how (laughs) right I was. But at the time that we went to FanFest in Las Vegas, I thought that there was a very good chance that we were going to the first and a lot of people thought that we were going maybe to do some time travel shenanigans but it looks like with this new trailer the chance of us actually going to the first has climbed pretty considerably so i am very excited about potentially going to the first we'll just have to see what comes out of that and of course we had viera confirmed and our new tank being the Gunbreaker, which i thought it was going to be soldier but it's Gunbreaker is our new tank and and of course Scoot plans on remaining Paladin no matter what and I've already got his his glamour in game for his Shadowbringers thing which is going to just keep the Super Scoot outfit but get rid of the mask and put over a whole hood because he I've, I have figured out a good way for him to, to rationalize Shadowbringers in this storyline really where he is the Warrior of Light and if that's the case then this expansion is really going to test, because he thinks in black and white, how far is Scoot willing to go to keep his oath? How far is he willing to push his own comfort zone? How much is he willing to to give up and rethink in order to keep this oath that he's given as a paladin? Hmm. So he's he's really not thrilled about being a warrior of darkness, because he's always thought darkness is bad. So that's that's probably going to be what he will have to face in Shadowbringers. Now how he acts in the open world in in the world where he's doing RP events, he's just a paladin in training, but in terms of main scenario and that sort of storyline, that's what I'm going to be developing.
1: Interesting, interesting. The majority of the time I actually play my main Natsuki as a non-combatant. Mm -hmm. I say that he was an adventurer in the past or that he's an adventurer sometimes, on occasion when it's needed. But like you, I have sort of two versions, the version that gets brought into RP and the version in my head, which aligns more with the main scenario.
0: Yeah, and I've found that a lot of role players that I've interacted with, especially on Tumblr, we have these different universes where... There's like a warrior of light universe where I treat the character as the warrior of light. And then there is this other universe that I interact with in game where they may not be a warrior of light. They're just, you know, they're just Morgana. They're just Kip. They're just whoever, whoever is, is there, but they aren't necessarily a warrior of light. And so having those two distinct universes is pretty cool.
1: Indeed, indeed. Now, my story. Hmm, what have I been doing in-game? I've been doing a lot of Eureka, because I'm crazy.
0: Oh, I have too. (laughs) So I guess we both are. But then again, we're hosting MuseCast14. What did you expect?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love to ride the notorious monster train. Choo-choo. But my story today has to do with another activity that I've been doing on a regular basis, which is treasure maps. You never thought the treasure maps could be that interesting. But I've got sort of like a treasure map static going on. Every Thursday night, we run maps basically until we fall asleep. (laughs) And it's a lot of fun, and we're on voice chat, and we're... Sloppy! ...about how such-and-such doesn't sell on the market board for much anymore, such-and-such crashed the market. (laughs) Oh my god, I hate the shifting canals of (laughs) Uznair.
0: I do, too. (laughs) Now, if I remember correctly, your group runs it a little bit different than a lot of groups on Gilgamesh do. Most people that I know, at least, do whoever owns the map can need on everything. And then whoever is running it and doesn't own that map can greed.
1: Yeah, we do it in a different way that at first seems kind of iffy and a little confusing. But once you get used to it, It's actually a lot more fair than other systems, and it works for us just because we do this on such a regular basis. And this is apparently inspired by something in World of Warcraft. Basically, everybody that participates in Maps gets their name put on a list in a separate Google Doc. And the first time you join Maps, you're at the bottom of the list. Now, every time that a valuable piece of loot drops, and we decide in advance what is valuable and what's not valuable, based on current market board prices... The person at the top of the loot list has the opportunity to need on the item. They can either use their need roll, or pass, in which case the next person on the list has the opportunity to need on the item. And it's totally agnostic to whose map it is. So in that way, it kind of equalizes who gets a chance at valuable loot. It's not just the people that have gatherers leveled up that are gathering all their own maps. And over time, it makes the drops of rare loot or valuable loot more even and evenly distributed. But that's not even my story. What's your story? <laughs> so it is interesting. One day, we were in Yansha doing our maps, and we came across an A-rank hunt. Now, all of us are already in a party, so it was easy to get a group together. However, you know, when hunts come up, there's always people shouting LFG, LFG, looking for a group. So we invited a few strangers into the party. Now, something I learned about double-seater mounts... We have a lot of fun in our maps group about sniping the double-seater mounts. Like someone will summon a double-seater mount like the whale or the wedding chocobo. And it's like a race to say who can snap up the second seat first. Yeah, I learned that you're actually only able to ride pillion or take the second seat if you're in a party with someone. So what happened? After we killed this A-rank hunt, we have these strangers in our party and we summon our double-seater mounts. And one of the strangers takes the seat. <laughs> We're like, okay. Um, I guess you're part of our group now. And then we, then we just went with it. We invited them to the voice channel and we said, Hey, you want to do maps with us? Random people. <laughs> and they actually came along with us. Yeah. It was just one of those moments where you actually successfully made friends with a random stranger in this game. And how that can happen. I mean, they were a little bit forward by taking the seat, (laughs) but it's just so serendipitous and shows what happens when you are open, when you're willing to meet new people and just sometimes have fun with total strangers.
0: Yep. You never know who you'll meet along the way.
1: Yeah. It's not just your FC mates out there or your Linkshell mates.
0: Or your housing ward mates.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You can meet people anywhere. It's a big world. And that's my story.
0: And that about wraps up our episode for today. Now again, you can look forward to our next episode being a voice RP skit, not your typical MuseCast 14 episode. But until our next episode, you can always find more of our past episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also find us on social media. Please be sure to subscribe, share, follow, and all that. Our website is hosted through Tumblr. That is musecastxiv.com. You can also find us on Facebook, just look up MuseCast14, MuseCastXIV and you'll find us there. Or you can find us on Twitter at MuseCastXIV and you can join in the conversation. We talk about episode content, we talk about Shadowbringers content, for example. We talk about really all sorts of things, lore help, writing help. If you want to just say hi and talk with us about whatever you would like, feel free to join in our Discord. Our discord you can find on our website musecastxiv and there is a link to that on that page and we do some streaming efforts from time to time you can find our twitch channel at twitch.tv musecastxiv and if you like what you heard and you would like to support us in some way you can do that in one of three ways first off because i just mentioned our twitch channel you can donate to our twitch streaming efforts not the podcast itself just the stream at twitch.tv slash musecastxiv, and the subs, the bits, and all of that that you you give to us will go toward all of that. You can also support us on Patreon, where for a monthly donation, you can get access to bonus content, things like some of our other beast races and dragon speak, just anything that we wanted to talk about on the episode, but didn't have the time to talk about, we post there. You can also get access to episodes 24 hours before they come out, which is always cool. And you can also support us on PayPal, where it's a one-time donation. If you don't want to make a monthly commitment, you can always give that way too. Whatever way you decide to support us, we'll be extremely grateful. And yes, we'll thank you. (laughs) We will thank you. So to donate to our Patreon and our PayPal, though, go to our website and click on the shiny blue buttons.
1: Indeed, we're very grateful to all of our Patreon supporters. And one in
0: particular... So this episode of MuseCast14 was brought to you, of course, by all of our Patreon donors, and was sponsored with love by our MuseCast sponsor, Hershey. You can find her on social media, including her Twitter, at Hershnifersh. That's at H-E-R-S-H-N-I-F-E-R-S-H. Or you can check out her FF14 and variety stream at twitch.tv slash Same thing, H E R S H N I. F-E-R-S-H
1: Yes, not Hershey's Corporation but (laughs) Hershey the person Hershey the person Thank you again listeners for joining us on this epic Beast Tribe adventure and we will see you next time Yep, see you next time Thanks for listening to MuseCast 14 Tune in to our next episode, Operation Archon Deleted Scenes. Happy adventuring May you ever walk in the light of the crystal.